that we just have to keep lifting one another up. Uh, I'm so thankful for the prayer ministry. Who does our prayer ministry right now for this class? Do we know? Who's who's is it you, Brenda? Are you doing the prayer ministry for us still? Oh, great. Okay, I thought it was you, but I wasn't positive. So we are so thankful to Brenda for her faithfulness to us in that as well. So keep your eyes open. Just print out those lists as they come and just keep praying for one another. That's just such an awesome thing. So helpful in our our days here on this earth. We need it, right? But I can tell you one thing that has been impressed on me. Um, as we're approaching these end portions here of the book of Hebrews is the idea that, that we are to set our eyes on Jesus who endured his cross, the cross that he um, bled and died on for us to accomplish all that he has accomplished for us. But if we keep our eyes on him and understand the glory that's to come, the rewards that's to come, the promises of God that are to come, that is really absolutely vital and essential in our personal lives. Um, I was talking with Susan just a minute ago about, you know, family issues that, that go on for every one of us. And when you see a family member who's walking apart from God, they make so many bad choices. And those bad choices have such long-term ramifications and if you could only turn their eyes to Jesus, what a change and a, a deliverance could be there for them. Um, so we are studying a, a book right now that um, I believe is probably the most misunderstood book. And a lot of it is a, a twofold thing. On the one hand, you can stay at a very superficial level in this book and only look at the qualities of it that have to do with the, with the things that they were dealing with in that day, pertaining to the temple and the, their transforming move from being in the old covenant to the new. And if you stay on that level, those insights are glorious. Now, one thing that I love about them is in the explanations of this book that, that this author has given to us, the detail that he has gone into, there is doctrine, 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 and so much insight. We're going to cover at least one real specific point on that today with our homework. But it's an amazing thing that we have the insights because I don't think as Gentiles in particular we would really grasp any of it if it weren't for the fact that this author goes through and very carefully step by step every single point he has covered in showing Jesus as the fulfillment of that old covenant uh, and how it's now put aside or it's become obsolete because of Jesus' coming. This is a great treasure. But the other side is... Besides the qualities of the, the doctrinal points for the temple uh, insights concerning Jesus being that picture, there's, there's a deeper message in this book that I think people miss, and that is the message that's to us, you and I, the believer, who are to walk by faith, live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith is the phrase that we, in, we close with in chapter 10 and as we move into 11. Now, next week, the next two weeks, we are going to be in chapter 11. And the great thing is I think he, she, um, her homework kind of slows us down enough to, to give us the two full weeks to, to go through it. Um, I just warn you, don't get too wrapped around every one of the stories in there but l try to stay up on the level of what the author's purpose is in this right so that you don't miss the message he's giving by getting tangled in every one of the stories that are s 
uh, mentioned as an example of faithfulness, okay? So with that said, because we want to try to stay up here on this level of understanding the, the author's purpose, we need to go back and restate in our minds clearly what the um, context is in this particular book. Why? Because context rules for interpretation right? So we have to remember what our context is. And because we've had a long break, we need to go back and try to refresh our minds just a little bit on that. So tell me, I'm going to just walk through this part of it without writing any of it on the board. I want to just discuss the context part, and then we'll get into what we're going to actually work on from your homework, okay? All right, so let's go back to the historical setting. Um, concerning the audience and the author both, how did they receive the gospel message and from whom? Do you remember? How did they hear it? Go back to chapter 2, verse 3, and tell me what, how did they, they receive the message? And how does that help us set historical context? Boy, we are going to, I'm going to tell you this, we are going, I know, I'm telling you, we are going to have to shake cobwebs out, because when you take this big of a break like we did with the, our summer vacation time, um, coming back in, it's almost like starting fresh again on it. The advantage you will have is as these things are brought back up to your mind, it, you will go, oh yeah, oh yeah, and we're going to do this for a couple of weeks, and then you'll get back into it again. It'll be good. So, for, so today, there's lots of grace. I'm going to direct you into verses to help you find the answers and, and refresh your minds a little bit, okay? So how did these people come into the gospel? From those who heard it from Jesus. So this tells us that the author and the, the audience of this, the recipients of this letter did not have a direct uh, uh, message from Jesus. So they're not the apostles, right? That's, would you say that's a significant point, that they're not the apostles? That they're not, certainly not one, the author is certainly not one of the 12 apostles, right? Even though sometimes people want to say that, right? Uh, and it's no one who directly received the gospel message from Jesus himself. These are people who heard it from those who heard it from Jesus. Okay? That's helpful to me, I think, and to you. Um, there's another point as far as trying to set the historical context. So we know in the timeline kind of where we are on this. Um, it's after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's, uh, it's the growth of the church at, probably somewhere either during or after the time of what is written in the book of Acts, right? Those, those, that era of the book of Acts. Um, what about the temple? What do we know about the temple? It is still there. Go back to chapter 13, verse 9. I want you to just look at it one more time to refresh your memory so that it's, it's not my word. I want you to see it for yourself. What do you see is stated in there that tells us that we know the temple is still in active use? Somebody read that verse for me. 13, 9. Is that his? Is that Hebrews thirteen nine? Ten. I'm sorry. Keep going. Verse ten. Okay. There we go. Okay. I'm so sorry. So we have a ten, a altar that they have no right to eat 
from, right? In other words, he's saying they are still going to an altar is the implication there. And throughout this whole book, is it not, uh, are there not enough validating remarks that show to us that he's really battling against something that is still existing, right? Don't go back to that. Don't, don't um, give up on the endurance that you've had thus far. Stay, stay steadfast in your faith walk. Be, be faithful to that which you are now. Press into the maturity of your faith. And, so, and he says, don't keep going back to the elementary things, right? All right, so we know the historical setting then is the, all, the temple is still standing. So this is before what time frame on a timeline? Before 70 AD. So it's that... Absolutely, before 70 AD, and it's after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've got a small window of about 25, 30 years that we can say we know it falls right in here, right? That's helpful, yes? How young then is the church? Very young. So as you look at the message that this author is giving to them, does that impact your understanding of how he's going through what he's doing as far as what he's presenting, what he's telling them? If the temple is still active and present, and that is something that the, the, these uh, recipients have grown up in, this has been their experience with how they worship God. This has been their experience in their family history. And many among them of their family members and community are still engaged in it actively because they haven't come into this new faith, right, in this new covenant. So they are battling a tug of war in their hearts and amongst themselves with their family members as to this new thing that they have entered into where now they are no longer going to that temple and they are no longer performing those sacrifices. And so it is a daily battle of faith that they are having to truly... It's, it's like uh, giving up a bad habit, so, so to speak. Not that the old temple works were a bad habit, but I'm just saying trying to break that habit of family and tradition that was there for them and established is a difficult thing. If you think of it just in reality, in your own life, how long does it take you to break a, a habit, to stop doing something you've always done before? It's very difficult, isn't it? And how easy is it to slip back into it? pretty easy, right? And sometimes, especially in the case of faith, with this particular group, what do we know about the recipient's understanding about their new faith? Is there a problem? What has been the problem? Do you remember? That's right. So they didn't mature, and because they didn't mature, then does that, do you think that makes a person more vulnerable to slip back into old ways? How, is, how does that apply to a believer today? Does, do, is there an application of that for us as well? How, what, it, what do you see happen in the lives of people that come into faith, or at least you think they have, because you've given them the gospel message and they've made a, a verbal uh, uh, testimony that they have faith on Jesus, but then what happens if they don't get connected? What if they don't get trained up? Oh, yeah. How, what is our danger in our world today about that? What, what kind of things can pull a person away? How many venues are there out there to pull them away? Okay. 
And what is the what is the avenue? I mean, is it, it do you do they it, you know in the days of the writing of this book, they didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, right? So they didn't have as many bombardments, I don't think, as you know in their day, unless they actually engaged with a person in a conversation who wanted to draw them away, there would probably not necessarily be a lot of things that would, ca at least not personally cast it out. But what do we have going on in our world today? You have, well, you have TV, you have all the stimulus around you. I, I thought I brought somebody to faith once, she was having an affair, and I was trying to talk her through all that, and then she started going to church with us a few times, and then she went back to her, her, her buddies that she would drink and smoke and have good old times all the time with and never had any other influence of God anymore. Right. 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 And so when you see something like hap like that happen with a believer, in your mind, what kind of starts to go through your mind as far as evaluating the genuineness of, of a faith? Right. So so then you could you conclude then that that her unfaithfulness to and uncommitment basically to her newfound faith in Jesus Christ by her not making that step forward, would you say that is probably some a, a sign or an indication that maybe they had they never actually really made their their faith commitment to Jesus, even though they they spoke the words. This is a tender uh, and challenging subject for people because a lot there are some who simply say all you have to do is confess with your mouth and it's a done deal. What do you think Hebrews has been teaching us so far on this? Okay, the heart is really huge. In chapter 4, as a matter of fact, he follows up a passage about those who are in belief and not in belief, right? And then in chapter 4, then in the middle of that, he stops and says, but God in his word uh, discerns and he, he can divide between uh, uh, bone and marrow, thought and intent, right? So God does, ultimately, it is God who's going to discern whether a person is or is not saved. However, preceding that, starting in chap the end of chapter 3 and then all through the first part of chapter 4, do you remember what the subject matter was in there and the example that this author used? Entering into the rest of God. And when he gave the example and he taught to them how you know if someone has actually entered into rest, what was the synonymous word he used with uh, having faith or believing? Obedience. He actually ties obedience and faith together. He's saying, Jesus actually said, he says, those who love me, what? Obey me, right? Those who truly love me, obey me. So, not that we want to say that no one ever doesn't obey God. I mean, all of us occasionally still disobey God, right? But the message here is that there is to be a general principle in a person's life who has truly come into faith that obedience to God and a desire to be obedience to God is fundamental. It's a foundational truth. And so as you go through chapter, the last of three and four, where he first introduces the, the subject matter of entering into faith, he says, basically, those who fell in the wilderness 
And he uses that as an example of judgment, right? That's how it's applied. And it's not to say that everyone who fell in the wilderness was not. But I'm saying he's using it as a principle of teaching. So in general, he's saying those who fell were those who what? Did not believe. And therefore, they did not enter into the rest of God. Um, In this book, for the Hebrew people, the rest of God uh, was pictured for them by entering into what? the promised land, right? So again, we're seeing then with this book, this author is taking all the pictures that have been given to Israel by God through their system of worship, through the promises that he gave them, through the, the, um, the, even the laws of their land that were later given to them, everything in some way or another. There are pictures that God gave Israel for them to understand uh, spiritual truths, about who he was in relationship with him, right? I, even the book of Genesis, when, when God gave that to Moses, w- which was when he also gave them the law, he taught throughout the whole book of Genesis who is God, who is man, and what is man's relationship to God. This gives ma- man an understanding of who he is, where he came from, why he's here, and where he's going when he's done with his life. And all this is laid out in fundamental teachings through the book of Genesis. This book, Hebrews, to me, almost takes the entire Old Testament and draws it into this new uh, covenant of God. And he almost takes every one of the old covenants. And even if they're not each individually mentioned, he, he draws principles of truth from them. And even some of them get merged. Like the Mosaic covenant of the law and the Abrahamic covenant, both in chapter 9, both are being addressed, even though he doesn't spell out every point of every one of them. He's making an assumption they are familiar with those, right? Which for us Gentiles, and in in this generation of, of New Testament living that we're in all these thousands of years later, we have to go back and learn, right? So those are points that he uses then to express or to explain principles of doctrine, principles of faith. And the reason is, as we've already discussed, is because they had remained infants in their faith. They had not pressed into a maturity of knowledge of the word of God and come to really evaluate how is the new covenant implemented? How is Christ the fulfillment of all the promises of God? How is, how even, even Paul addressed it when he goes in, when you're in, um, I think it's chapter seven, but he, he shows them legally how they can be released from the covenant of the law to enter into the covenant of the new covenant in Christ Jesus and do so legitimately because for them there's also a legal point to this that if if you're in a covenant you can't just walk away right there has to be certain things occur in order for you to be released from an old covenant in order to enter into a new so we're going to we're going to move forward into that in a little bit okay so the recipients are those who have heard the gospel um and assumedly received it right so he addresses them as what how, do, how, is, how are some of the synonyms of these? The beloved, partakers of a heavenly calling, the brethren. Okay, good. So, and, and in that, however, what's very interesting is although he addresses them in that way, go to chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Because you're talking about right away at the beginning of this book. 
he starts out with a warning to them, doesn't he? What does he say there in 2, 1 and 2? Okay, okay, no, that's good. No. Okay, now he's, he also, let's take another verse. Um, let's go to verse chapter 4 now, verse 1, and, and couple that together with what you just saw in chapter 2. What does he say there? Okay, so starts out by saying, let's not drift away from what we have heard. And he also basically gives a warning that they ha there, there needs to be some self-examination, right? At least any one of you may have come short of it, correct? Okay, so he's addressing, quote, the brethren verbally. He calls them the brethren. And yet he's giving some warnings, right? As if maybe some of them aren't. What would you call that kind of a, of a address? Who do you think this man is to these, the audience? Um, okay, mentoring maybe. Well, we know he's writing a letter of doctrinal instruction, so he, to some degree he's at least their teacher, right? Uh, later in the book, we, we see him asking them for prayer, and he wants to be reunited with them, right? So do you think he holds a pastoral position? Would you consider then that this is an address to a congregation? Okay. And I think that if you can keep that in mind as we go through the things that this author is saying, where, where in some ways it almost looks like he's a little bit undecided as to what they are. Are they believers and brethren or are they not? And he kind of tends to make you feel like he's, back and forth on this issue, but if you then step back from that and say, well, if he's making a congregational address, is he actually pointing to any one individual and saying you are or you aren't? No, he's not. So how is he handling the subject of salvation to a congregation? Is it any different than our pastors do today? So when our pastors stand at our pulpits today and they preach a message and they preach it from what kind of a perspective for the most part? That we are believers. And, and they do it from a, a perspective of wanting to do what in your heart and life? To encourage you and to instruct you. That's right. Was that what you said at the... Exhort, exhort, exhort and instruct. So... That is, I think, in a nutshell, what you're seeing in this particular book. It's a, it's a, he says very clearly at the end of it, bear with this word of exhortation, right? So he tells them it's a word of exhortation, but he does address two possibilities with the people that are listening. That on the one hand, they are all true believers, and it's a, that, that he's just making a generality assumption. You are all, you're here. I'm just going to assume you're all believers, right? But on the other hand, he also steps out on a regular basis and challenges them to self-examine, making sure that you, have real, that you are truly both in the faith and remaining faithful in the faith, right? All right? That's right. 
the fruits that you exhibited, how you joyfully uh, right. took, the, took the seizure of your property and That's identified right. with those that were in persecution. Right. So, yeah, I think he's just, he's just restating what Jesus had told Right. And I think he is actually not, I don't think that any one of his individual points is, has an identified target. What he's doing is making a general congregational plea that each individual for themselves examine to see whether or not they're in the faith. And if they are, he sets the standard for what is acceptable behavior in life. Is everyone in agreement with that at this point? Is that how you see this? That he's, okay. I think that that is helpful because then what happens is when he does hit some of these places where he's saying you this and you that and it almost sounds like he's condemning them right to hell. <laughs> what he's really saying is examine yourself so that that does not happen to you. And that is exactly what a pastor does in our pulpits every Sunday morning. Most of them who are faithful to address the the whole totality of an audience. Every teacher faces this challenge. You know, when you're when you're t teaching, you know, in my case, it's more like different levels of knowledge that you have to try to say, well, get down low enough so that those who are just starting this can grab hold too and join you, but then make it challenging enough to, for personal application, then make it even deeper for those who want to go to the next step. And it's kind of a, a, a stretch sometimes. I remember when I first came into faith and I was teaching a young class, it was called Girls in Action at my Baptist church. And I had first through sixth grade girls in one class. That's a tough challenge. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I was teaching missions, and so it wasn't so bad. But I had to be uh, able to address every, every step of maturity uh, for what they were capable of handling, but also of what they were capable of understanding, right? This, I think, is very much what is going on in this particular book. This author, because he's teaching congregationally, he apparently has observed something else with them. Besides the fact that they're immature and haven't pressed in, what else does he see that there's maybe some p problems that he's clear about? It does sound like that. Now, what would maybe make them want to do that? Persecution, um, ostracized, being ostracized by the family. Okay. Right. Maybe even financial. Who knows? There could be a multitude. It could be a mom and a dad pressing them. You know, we've always done this as a family. You owe this to your daddy. Your, your, your grandpa's about to die, and he's not going to be here anymore. You need to come to this ceremony or this... What, I mean, it could be all kinds of things, right? And so this author has to address all these kinds of issues because he's speaking congregationally. And so he has to try to both emotionally and intellectually challenge and reach out to each person at all kinds of levels. So in this book, you see him doing that. He goes from the nitty-gritty of explaining things that are real technical to making kind of generalities, too, about just life in general. One of the things that we do know is primarily his audience is, is our who. They're Jewish. We know this how. The temple. 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, right. The book, the book title is, is Our Help. However, at the time the letter was written, it, wasn't, it didn't say that. Actually, as a matter of fact, when we did some research on that, we found that the book was uh, titled Later, and there's a big debate <laughs> about whether it was even titled correctly, right? However, if you do any work at all in the book, you come to see Hebrews is a very good title, right? Because the whole book is about an address to Hebrew-minded people. We see that because of all the, the scripture references. How many quotes are there in this book? All from the Old, the, the Old Testament, right? Over and over and over. And as he addresses them, particularly as we're now about to enter into chapter 11, who are all the examples that are given to them? All from the old, the saints, the patriarchs that they all know, right? So it becomes very apparent that this is a Hebrew audience. And that, see, that has a very strong influence in the things that he's addressing in this particular book. Okay, so they, they, uh, they, are, they have heard the gospel. They are urged not to drift away from it. We now have come to see they are also willful infants in their faith. They have willfully not matured, right? And how do we know that that's a willful act on their part? A lack of their being responsible. How do we know that? Okay, they they have had instruction and... That's the one I was thinking of. By now, you should be teachers. But you can't. You can't even... And he, was, he had addressed a, a conversation of Jesus being the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And when he brought that up, he says, I can't even begin to explain this to you because you're so immature in your understanding of basically, he doesn't say it this way, but I am. He, he basically is saying, you don't get the pictures. You don't see how Jesus is this for you. And so they are challenged because they are people who are so used to having a high priest or a priest at all. They can't fathom their life without an earthly priest. And so he, has, he wants to explain to them through the, um, the, the ancient story that they have through Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek and how Jesus, by, by declaration of God himself, said that his seed, when he came, he would be a, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He quotes Old Testament and he gives the Old Testament encounter story with, with Abraham in passing. He just assumes they know about it, and yet he knows they don't get it yet. And so he has to go back then. And full, does, how complicated almost was it when he starts to explain how Jesus can fulfill this Melchizedek thing? How the order of Aaron could, could be usurped by the order of Jesus, right? He really had to go into a lot of detail on this. And it's because they had not pressed into their faith and they had not matured. It was a willfulness on their part, however. In other words, they wouldn't discipline themselves to be in the Word of God. Okay, they are challenged to endure, to live by faith, and to do God's will repeatedly in this book, right? Every time he makes a statement, he, he actually, there are at least two major passages in this that we call difficult passages, right? But would you say you're having less and less tr trouble with them now the longer we're in here? And are, are you doing better with it, you guys? You feel like you're okay with what went on in chapter 6, for instance, when he talked about the land that was going to be burned and what was going on? Do you remember why, what that passage was about? 
it, it's ta- he's talking about the discipline that could come on their lives if, in fact, they aren't faithful, right? Um, he says we, you're to leave those elementary things. He had just, in chapter 5, called them babies and infants who hadn't matured. He wants them to press into Christ rather than the things that they are not doing. And then he says, but the ca- in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted that heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, so who is he speaking to? Yeah, that's right. That is a believer. You cannot make that be anything else. If they are a partaker of the Holy Spirit, that is absolutely a believer. And then he says, but yet then you have fallen away. Now, what does fallen away in this context then mean? We know you don't lose salvation. So what is falling away? What is he making a reference to? Unfaithfulness, being disobedient, being falling into sin, which we all can do. Right? Even as believers, we can do this. We can fall away also from the right path. Correct? Now, in this case, what he's saying is, however, if you do that, and especially if you do that and you don't repent, what's going to happen then with your life? What is he saying in the statement that follows it? The ground that drinks in the rain that falls upon it, if it, if it produces useful vegetation, what happens? You get a blessing from God. But if you produce thorns and thistles, that ground, not your faith, not your salvation, that ground, those works, the fruit of your life, it is in danger of being burned up because it will be for nothing if it's not done in faith. If it's not done according to faith. In other words, in obedience to God's principles and his truth. You can't straddle a fence and walk both sides of it. And you can't fall back into your old way of doing things but still claim that you're in in your faith and expect God to bless the things that you're doing when you're out of sync with God's word. Yes, it could be. It could be. And we didn't go into a lot of detail on that, but the, there's a whole Bible study on the discipline that, that God can um, put us through. And we're going to look at it more when we get into chapter 12. And I will take chapter 6 and try to merge it into 12. And then I'll take you back even into maybe some Old Testament passages where you see God dealing with even his saints, like David and like... Um, Moses and so forth and there are many stories in the Old Testament that are showing to us where the faithful true believers were unfaithful to God they had fallen away and God disciplined them and when God disciplines what's his purpose is it to destroy you no it's to restore you and it's to strengthen you and build you back up and get you back on the right path so that then you will be in that first section where your vegetation is what useful Yeah, and God can bless it then. So that's what chapter 6 is about. Boy, is that a long way we've come in understanding that chapter 6. Now we're into 10. Okay, so we've got pretty good foundation laid about the author, the recipients. Um, we, We see his pastoral leadership role in this. We see he's writing to exhort them. But he does so in his exhortations. They are through instruction, rebuke, and warnings, right? It's a combination of all of those things. He desires that they conduct their lives in righteous living. That's his goal. Because apparently some of them are falling away, not out of faith, not losing salvation, but falling into sins, and they need some correction. Does a child need correction? 
even though they're, they're being naughty, are they bad kids? I mean, are they worthless? Are they, or do they need to be burned up and just be gone because they fail to be obedient? No, they need to be disciplined and trained so that they come back into right relationship with their family members and with society rules and regulations, and that they, then the fruit in their life is healthy and joyful and productive as citizens, right? I mean, that's just one one way of looking at this whole scenario. This, however, is on the spiritual level. Spiritually, we have even a greater calling, don't we? A higher calling, because we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ under a new covenant, and it's slightly different from the old system. So he's going to address that now in chapter 10, how, how it's, it's a different system, and if you do not enter it correctly, then there is no hope. Okay? All right, now, key repeated words very quickly. Tell me some of the key subjects that you know are going on in, in the book of Hebrews on the whole. Who is the number one subject? Jesus himself, right? What are the other key things that are, uh, that are brought up to help you to focus in this book? The better than quality, that Jesus is better than. And with that said then, what are, what is the comparisons that are going on? What are the contrasts? The old and the new. Those, that's the problem. The old covenant versus the new covenant. Jesus is better than. And so then he goes through progressively. And s smaller subjects come up, although some of them are pretty, pretty big. But one of them is, for instance, the priesthood, um, and that he's a priest forever. And that is a heavy subject, but it isn't the primary subject. The priesthood is not the primary subject of this book. It's one of the subjects he uses to explain the greater subject, which is Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. Because he's trying to educate them about this new faith that they are in. This new covenant. Okay. Um, that the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle contrasted with the heavenly. So again, he takes it to that level of the, this is the earthly example, but there is a heavenly reality, right? So he's trying to clarify to them that what they're looking at in the earthly is a picture for them. It's not the truth. It's not the, the true tabernacle. Everything in that tabernacle has a imagery for them so that they learn a spiritual truth, right? All right. So we've got the tabernacle. What else comes up? Sacrifice is another subject. And that the blood specifically, what blood is better than, right? All right. Right, the covenant, correct? There we go. Rewards and pro the promises of God given by an oath, right? So you can almost join promises and his oath together as one subject and kind of accumulate information on that. But when God made his promises, they were given by an oath, which, was do which does what for this audience that, he that he's impressing on them? It's unchangeable. How sure is the promises of God? What does he do to actually press that home to them? What, what kind of things does he tell them about? That, number one, he explains that it's impossible for God to, to lie. And then when he does so, how, how does he demonstrate that God has always been truthful? Well, no, because that's talking about the individual and how they demonstrated their faith. But when it comes to God giving a promise, how does he, ex how does he show to them that God's promises are true? 
he, he explains what an oath is, and he explains that by an oath and by a promise, by God's word and then by, by supporting it with cutting a covenant, that, that those two things right there alone show that absolutely God will do what he says, right? Then how does he demonstrate to them that, that God has done what he says? There you go. By explaining storylines that says God said he would do this, and this is what God did. And he drops them in in a subtle way that says, see, he was faithful, he was faithful. Chapter 3, for instance, he opens with the subject of, of being faithful. And he says Moses was faithful, right? But how was Mo Moses faithful? And what is the contrast or comparison in there? He, okay. It, one is the builder of the house who is God and and the other, he's the servant in that house, right, exactly. So one is a servant, and one is the son. One is the builder, and one is the assistant to the builder, right? And so he makes a contrast, but in there, he, it's very cool because early, early, early in this book, he starts with planting in our minds this understanding that faithfulness is, is a quality that he wants these believers to live in. He says, Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful, and then although it's not said it, until way at the end, what does he want you to do? Be faithful, right? All right. Now, let's move then to, um, there's really one major segment division that I see, and if, if any of you see any others, let me know. Um, do you see a major segment division where this book kind of divides into two parts? It's very much like, I think Romans does it too, and a couple of others but there you go instruction application doctrine app and application okay so chapters 1 to 10 mostly lay down doctrine although there's still some doctrine in some of the others as well but 1 to 10 is mostly who Jesus is how he compares to the old and how he fulfills the old and he gets to real technical about understanding how legitimately these believers can step out of the faith of their uh, or out of the covenant of the law and understand the fulfillment of the covenant of, of Abraham through Jesus Christ, and then they can step into it. And then he starts then in chapters uh, 11 to 13 on how they are to walk it out, and he gives starts in chapter 11 by giving all those wonderful examples to them of how others before them did so, right? Okay, um... I want to go real quickly, one of the major subjects, uh, the major subject in this book is Jesus himself. So if you kind of look at a smaller segment division in this, I see one that pertains to Jesus himself, how he is th that which is better in reference to his work. So in, one, in chapters 1 to 4, we see that the law can never make us perfect by its sacrifices, right, in, in 1 to 4. But then in 5 to 10, it's contrasted, but Jesus, what? He, he does make us better. He does sanctify us by the offering of his own body, right? Once for all. That's, oh, wait a second, that was in chapter 10. Let me see, segment divisions. I'm sorry, my brain jumped. Let me go back to segment division, the segment divisions. I want to look at chapters 1 to 3. Do you remember in 1 to 3 how Jesus is portrayed? What is the, the Son of God? This is really important, you guys. Don't lose that title. He is God the Son. 
okay? That's a quality or a statement that, especially phrasing it in that way, not son of God, but God the son, I think is an important way of phrasing it in your mind so that when you move into chapter 10, you start to really get a better clarity of how Jesus um, was able to usurp or, or, or put aside or make obsolete that covenant of the law and how he was able to enact the new. All right, so he's God, he is God the Son in chapters 1 to 3, and he's portrayed in that way. Starting in 4 to 7, major subject there is he is what? The high priest. He is a high priest, and for how long? Forever. How does that contrast to the other system? They were only there until they died. And as, especially in the days of Jesus, <laughs> they weren't even waiting until they died. They were passing it on year by year, even and selling it off to one another. It had become so corrupt by the time Jesus came in, into the scene in the days of Rome. Um, in chapters 8 to 10, we see another major subject. First was the, the priesthood just before. Now what is the major subject in 8 to 10? The covenant, the, yes, the, you're always going to have Jesus. He's everything. He's every chapter. But in 8 to 10, the major subject is all about the covenant. And then it gives you three different qualities in each of those chapters about the, the better covenant, that he is a minister of a better covenant. And the last one I really love, um, 11 to 13, we haven't really talked about it a lot yet because we're just now approaching it, right? But in 11 to 13, if it's all about faith and you want to focus on how Jesus um, operates in faith or what effect he has concerning faith or what, what impact he has concerning faith, how might you want to look at those last three chapters of application but keep Jesus as the focus in it? Is, are there, is there anything that you've seen so far in what you've looked at? Yes. Okay, that was back in chapter 3. He was faithful, right? Oh, well, he says it in 10, too, doesn't he? You're right. Oh, there you go. That's the one I wanted you to hit on. You did it. Good job. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that was what I chose for my last segment division because then that flowed and kept Jesus at the center of, of the, the pattern as I went through there. So 1 to 3, he's the son of God. 4 to 7, he's a high priest forever. 8 to 10, he is the minister of a better covenant. And then the 11 to 13, he is the author and perfecter of faith. So that gave, gave a nice little segment division as we see Jesus being portrayed as you go through this particular book. Um, now, if he's the author and perfecter of faith, God who, in other words, he's the author. The author means he's the one that promised it. God is the one who promised it, right? And he's the perfecter. And a perfecter, in this case, doesn't mean perfection. What does it mean? Completion. He accomplished it. So he is God who promised it, and he is God who accomplished it. That's really cool. The author and perfecter. He's the one who authored it, and he is the one who accomplished it. I love that. Okay. See to it that you do not refuse him, therefore. Okay. Now, we're ready now to move forward if there are not any more questions about kind of the contextual setting of this book. I had to go back and do that with you. 
Um, we may do a little bit more again next week, uh, depending on what all detail is in our homework. But um, with a long break like we had, if you don't go back and try to get your boundaries again so that you remember, because to me, this particular book, and I've said this a, quite a few times, I'm going to say it again, this is not a book that you can drop in into any one chapter or even into any one segment division and get totality of understanding of any of the subjects that are brought up. This book st starts right at the beginning laying down information and drops little points and then progressively through the whole 13 chapters it keeps building more information about that subject so that you could start a list on any one subject like in Jesus maybe or salvation or or rewards or like we did this week we looked at the subject of uh, eternity or eschatology she had us look at that a little bit about things to come you could keep any one of those subjects start a start a list and start in chapter one and pull a little bit out of one and a little bit out of two and a little as you progressively move because she he he keeps building on subjects so you cannot look you cannot isolate any one verse in the book of Hebrews, and say, oh, then that means all these other things don't, are wrong. This is what it means. You have to put it all together. How do we keep ourselves then, since that is such a, a kind of a dangerous or precarious way that this book is written for us, how are we going to keep ourselves safe from coming to false understandings or wrong interpretations? What are some of the rules that we abide by? Context rules for interpretation. Do not violate your known doctrines. So it does not matter what you read when you read it in this book. If it violates a known doctrine, then you have to stop and reevaluate what is being said there, right? So that you can parse through things. The other thing I have found in this book is there are a few places where their choice of words for interpretation and how they've translated it into the English is poor. Um, I can't think of any offhand right now because I've forgotten, but I know we've talked about a couple of them as we've gone along where they've chosen a word. Oh, sanctification, that was one time where they talked about you are sanctified. It really should have been the word justified because that's what they were talking about. They were talking about in that particular verse, they were talking about your salvation, that it came through the blood of Jesus Christ. And sanctification in, in the world that we think of today, it's justification, sanctification, which is the working out of your faith, and then glorification, which is to come in the future. All three of those fall under one title called salvation. All of those are talking about the subject of salvation, but there's different qualities. Justification is, a, is an act at a moment in time when you accept Jesus Christ and he seals you with his Holy Spirit. And, and it is a work that was done from when, according to Hebrews 4? From before the foundation of the world. It's an accomplished work in the mind of God even before he established um, the world, even before man was was brought into life. He had already established a plan in his mind how he was going to repair the damage that we would do because of our free will and choosing not to follow and obey him. He said, I have, uh, in the Garden of Eden, um, when sin first occurred, what did God say to Adam and Eve concerning that? He had a plan that there would be, and that one day the seed would come and do what? 
crush the head of Satan. So he had a plan. The very first moment we see a first recording of a sin in the book of Genesis, God already had a plan in store. One day there's going to be a seed and that seed will come and crush the head of Satan. In the book of Hebrews, have we seen where that's addressed? That the devil was crushed? Do you remember? Was that in chapter 3 or 4? Let's go back and look very quickly because I liked it a lot. I think it was in, maybe it was 2, chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, um, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So right, right there in Hebrews, we see that he addresses the fact that there was a plan from before the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, it was a, it was a, a work finished from before it all began. And th but there was also a literal moment in history when the, the seed arrived and he did that work which God said would be accomplished, right? Okay, so when we have words, however, and in translations like that word sanctification, and it actually means justification. You have to be wise enough to read the totality of what's being said, put it all together and say, oh, what they really mean here is sanctified means they're set apart as in justified. Okay? All right. So we've got that said. Context rules. Don't violate your known doctrine. You've got to bring it all together. Know that if you drop in a place, you see something that's said, you're a little confused about it. Say, ooh, I better stop and remember what are my doctrines that I won't violate, number one. And number two, what else has this author said previously about this subject throughout all these chapters? Because you've got to pull them all in and lay them into a, a list so that you don't get lost in that one verse over there that sounds complicated and throws you for a loop. Okay? And I think that's exactly what has happened through the ages with this particular book. People don't stay in it long enough to really set their context and keep reminding themselves don't violate their known doctrine. And they, and they end up violating, and how, that's how you get bad stuff out there. Okay, so now what we are going to talk about right now is what you did in your homework. Let me see if I can find... Okay, I went through, and I haven't done this in a while, but I used to talk about it from time to time with you all. One of the things that's fun, and I would challenge you to, to try to do for yourself, if you're wanting to go to the next level in your inductive Bible study skills, after you've done all your homework, go back day by day and just look to see what did they inductively have you do, right? What was the major focus in day one's homework? What was it in day twos and so forth? So I went through and I looked at uh, day one. In day one, what do you think we did in day one? Just go back and look at your assignment and tell me what you see in day one's work. Yeah, we are in, chap we are in lesson nine of part two. Yes. I'm sorry, because that's where, we remember my foot threw us for a loop and I had to cancel and we didn't get to discuss this lesson. That's why we have to come back and finish it today. But it's actually very good because it gives us, instead of just doing a review, uh, a lesson zero, we're actually doing a lesson. So that's kind of nice. It'll help us, I think, better. But what did you see in lesson nine, day one's homework? What did you do there? What was your major subject? The throne, that's right. So it's all about the throne of Jesus, right? And so what you're basically doing there inductively is what? Okay, a topical study on this, of the subject of the throne. 
And does she give you boundaries for where you're observing it? Within the book of Hebrews. So did you see that? I mean, that's really cool when you... I know that doesn't sound like it's such a profound thing to do, and yet sometimes if you do that, all of a sudden all the work you just did makes sense to you why you did it. If you stop to say inductively, because this is an inductive Bible study method that we are operating through, if you stop and say to yourself in day one, what did I do inductively? you're going to see what it is that she's actually doing progressively. So in day one, she actually has you do a topical study on the throne of Jesus. And again, just like I said earlier, this author drops in a point in one verse, and then next chapter, he might drop in another, and then a few more chapters, he drops it in again. So you have to use the whole book in its totality to get all your subject information about the throne right? So let's do that together right now. Let's look to see what we learned about the throne in day one. Oops, my pen. Oh, nice marker. That's the kind of marker I like. <laughs> they, sometimes they dry out on me while, just while I'm talking. Of course, no wisecracks. <laughs> okay, we're going to look uh, right here about, we're going to look at the throne of Jesus. Okay. And she asked us to look at, um, the do basically what we were looking to see is what are the doctrinal teachings in Hebrews about the throne of Jesus and what he has accomplished by its symbolism. The idea of a throne is what? What is a throne in your mind? King? Authority? Power? Ruler? See, all the, look at all those qualities right there already. You're going, oh, yeah, that's right. See, so just the qualities of what a throne is, it's, it's, it tells us power, authority, ruler. I'm just going to put on here king. He, gets, he, is, he is now the king. Now, when you looked at it, we went to chapter 1, verse 3. So let's start there in 1, 3. What do you see in 1, 3 about Jesus and his throne of power and his kingship? When, when you consider that, what is said in chapter 1, verse 3 about his throne? Okay, that is a quality that's important, is it not? When uh, a king um, sits down... What, what is the t telling us in that particular message? When Jesus went in and sat down, he's finished his work. He went and he sat. Now he's finished. It's a completed thing, right? He's at rest at this point in that, in a sense, of the work, right? Okay, so he made purifications of sin, so is what is stated there, right? In 1.3 it says that he made, once he made purifications of sin, for sin, then he sat down. So that's the first thing that we're learned about him. He made purification. And then he sat down. And that's significant to a Jewish person because why? For the, uh, the audience of that time particularly, why is that significant? That Jesus wants it. Who makes purification for sin in their system? Their high priest. And they never sat down. Because why? 
That's right. The See how much we've learned already? Wow. You know that the blood of goats and animals, all of those things that were the calves, the, blood, the lambs, the goats, they do not make perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And since it does not accomplish that, then uh, the fact is that that particular, that high priest has to come back year after year after year and continue to do that. So there, one of the things that's not found in the temple itself is what? No chairs. There are no chairs because their priests never sat down. Because why? Their work was never done. So when he opens chapter 1 saying that Jesus, once he made purification for sin, he sat down, that is like, wow. Really? He sat down? That means what? Never again? He's done. His work is done. Now, for you and I, we had to get all the way through chapter 7 and 8 and 9 even of what we've just studied in order to really get the impact of that knowledge because we have to expose ourselves to their system, that old covenant system. But now that we understand that old system, we see the power that's given here in that one statement in chapter 1, verse 3 concerning the throne and what Jesus has accomplished but th and through that imagery that's stated to us every time the throne is mentioned for us. So in one throne, he made purification, and he sat down. And, w and he sat down where? At right hand of God. And again, the right hand is what? Position of power. Position of prominence, right? All right, so that's in one. And then he says, continuing in chapter 1, there's another, I think, real important quality about who Jesus really is and, and what's being portrayed to us in chapter 1 about who he is. You actually see it even before this, though, starting right there in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, all the way through. What do you, who do you see Jesus as being conveyed to them as being? God. He is God. The clearest statement, I think, is 1.8. What do you see there? Your throne, O God, is forever. So here we see by that information through studying the word throne, we see that he is God. He is portrayed as his throne. And he says, your throne, O God. Is forever. Okay, and that's in 1.8. All right. What, now let's move on into chapter 2. What else do we see about his work there? And it's, it does, uh, now I'm taking you to a little sideline here on this. It doesn't use the word throne here. But again, when he talks about the work, and we've actually, we already talked about it, but I'm just going to take you back there because I think it's a powerful point. In chapter 2, Again, we see, if you're thinking on the subject of the fact that his work is done, that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, what had he accomplished according to what we see in chapter 2 that allowed him to sit down? What was it that he had done? He had what? He had made purification of sins. What does that really mean? Mull that through a little bit. The idea of being purified from sins means what's the result of that? Pardon? The price has been paid, and, and if the price had not been paid, then how does that affect you and me? 
then we're still responsible, aren't we, for our sin. But what does he say in chapter 2 then about what he actually did at that cross and, and that he could sit at the, then sit on his throne when he was finished? He had made the propitiation. And in doing that, if you go back to the Garden of Eden and the seed that was promised, what was the seed going to do? So what did he accomplish so that he was able to sit down? He broke the power of Satan. He, broke, he, he rendered powerless the devil. I'm just going to put that on here because I know it didn't have anything to do with the throne, but I just think uh, it's interesting to me that in his flow of thought, he, in chapter 2, he inserts this point that what he accomplished so that he could sit down when he made propitiation was he rendered the devil powerless. And if you go back to the very beginning of the gospel's message to humanity, he said, I'm going to see, send you a seed, and that seed is going to crush the head of Satan. The, the, the storyline of the gospel did not initiate in the New Testament. It initiated all the way back at the very beginning where God introduced us to the fact of who is God and who is man. And when man failed in their obedience to God, when they rebelled against God, then God had a plan in place to remedy that. The remedy is, is uh, accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross so that then he made that purification for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the throne, and the work that he accomplished rendered powerless the devil. That accomplished what he promised to Adam and Eve. Again, are God's, is God's word true? Does he do exactly as he says he will do? So here we see him say that to us in the flow of thought. He rendered powerless... the devil and that's in 2 uh, 14 now I'm not going to actually I'm just going to put this as an additional point to how he, his throne is forever and how he made that purification right all right now let well that's exactly right Okay, all things are subjected to him. And what I think is, and that's in what verse, Carrie? Two, oh, two, eight. Okay, what I find interesting about that verse two is that things have always been subjected to him. It was actually finished from before the foundation of the world. However, we are now seeing the reality of God accomplishing what he promised. So as God makes promises to man, when he fulfills them, how does that affect a person's ability to have faith and to trust and to follow? Hope. Right? I remember a few weeks ago there was a, a visitor to our Sunday school class and his business card said on it, sowing seeds of doubt. <laughs> Do you remember that guy? You weren't there, I don't think. I was, but I happened. It's just one of those things with the Lord's timing. I happened to be there, and so at the end of class, I went up and I sat, and I ended up talking to him for about 30 minutes. But in there, in that conversation, um, he basically insulted me by saying, that I wasn't using reasoning and intellect of, of any measure, that I was just foolishly following, basically, a blind faith. And on, so my response to him was, 
When God promised something, and he has through the ages, thousands of years ago, and then he fulfills it, that to me is not blind faith. That is hearing what he said thousands of years ago through his prophets who claimed to be his, claimed to be speaking for him and by him. They wrote it down. It's been preserved supernaturally through the generations. And then when it's accomplished, that affirms that what God has said is true. Is that not a powerful thing? Of course, he just kind of rolled his eyes. What he said to me in response to that and other things was, well, obviously, you're not my target audience. <laughs> I'm never going to convince you because you, you, are, you are absolutely steadfast in what you believe. And I said, that's right. Absolutely. Very good point, and I'm so glad that that's what you that what you you know brought up to us again is this is why Hebrews was written because these believers were in danger because they had not matured, they did not have an answer. There's a scripture that says that we are to be prepared to give an answer for our faith, right, to defend it, that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine too that comes our way, or by every wind of a person who is is desiring to sow seeds of doubt and you won't get sucked into it because you have established yourself in an understanding that God promises, God said, God did, and, and Jesus fulfilled those things and that is the evidence of the truthfulness of who God is. And that's one of the qualities that he is bringing out in this book over and over is how faithful God is, how faithful Jesus was when God said and then God did. And, and you know, we, we went to at the end of um, the chapter there where we said God is the author and perfecter of faith. He who promised, he promised it and he accomplished it. I love that. Okay. What else did you learn about his throne? Well, you can go into, into any of the other... What verses did you look up on that subject when you did your homework? Okay, 413 to 16. Okay, tell me what you see in there. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Okay, so one of the qualities about it is what? What kind of a throne is it? It's a throne of grace. Now, how does that differ to the system that they came out from? No, it's not grace at all, was it? Under the law, it was what? It was works of obedience, right? They had to follow what God had instructed to them, to the letter, by the way, right? And that, that was the contrast that's being made here. Here it's a, a throne of grace. What a contrast that is for them. 416, okay? And we can now approach it. Because in this particular context, in chapter 2, 3, and 4, it portrayed Jesus as doing what? Jesus, who is God, right? The exact, exact representation of God, however. What did he do? God left the heavens and became what? Became a man. And in becoming a man and going through the life that he went through, then what do, can he do concerning us? He can sympathize with us. He understands our infirmities. He understands our weaknesses. He understands the frailty of this body, right? And for that reason... 
I always say this, though. Did God have to take on flesh in order to understand us? No. He created us. He fully understands us. But he did have to take on flesh in order to shed the blood that was required by his own law. So he took on flesh that he might become that propitiation to make that atonement for our sins. But he took it on now also that in this statement that we understand that he understands. Because he physically lived it, now we understand that he really does understand. Not that he didn't understand without it. Because he's all-knowing. And he's fully made us. He could have done it some other way. But this is the way he set up, he declared, he made the laws. He is the creator. He is the maker. He is the rule giver. He is the one who designed the plan of salvation from before the creation. And so now he's come, he's done it. We can understand that he understands. He can even sympathize with us in a way that through experiential living it helps us to approach him with confidence, knowing that he has experienced many of the things that we have experienced. The pain, the hurt, the heartache, the physical struggles, the emotional pains. He understands it all. Wow, what a great God. A throne of grace, we can approach it. We can confidently approach this. Okay, now, what else did you learn about the throne? Okay, and this is in, I'm sorry, what chapter are you in? Okay, I see where you fit, you did the, it has to do with entering within the veil, and so you associated that with the throne. Okay, all right. Oh, okay, the order, of, oh, got it, got it, I see what you're saying. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to get on board too. It's been a long time since we've been here. Okay, all right, so what points are you, uh, seeing in that concerning his throne, what do you what do you g- insight do you gain from that? That it creates a hope. Um, it anchors my soul, knowing that he's already <laughs> okay. He's the king who I heard someone say something. He's a he, king forever, and he entered within the veil, um, and. I think the rest of the statement is most applicable to us after that. He entered within the veil as what? As a forerunner for us. Because he's gone in and made the propitiation. Now for you and I, we're going to talk about the veil here in just a second. What has, what has happened for us then because he went in as that forerunner and made that propitiation? Now, he, what is a forerunner? The one who goes before you, which means you come after, right? That means now because he went in as a forerunner for us and made that propitiation, now we can confidently enter in, right? So he provided for us basically a way to enter into the presence of God. Was that true in the old system that they were uh, familiar with? Could they ever enter into the holy place? Oh, no. (laughs) Not even their priests could. Only the high priest and only once a year. 
Right. And the Right, and the hope is, it, when you connect the word hope, what do you connect that back to? What other synonyms in this, in this book is there? Assurance. The assurance, okay, an assurance and a hope, confidence, faith, and also even go back to the promises, right? Because what is the hope in? Is in what God has promised, right? So it, and so when you look at the hope, when we consider the word hope in English, how do we see that word? We wish it were true. We hope it's true. But in this particular context, how is hope used? Absoluteness. As an assurity. Now, when we get into homework next week, you're going to get to really build that understanding up more because we're going to do word studies and look at that all in the context of chapter 11. Um, so it's a sure hope, and it gives us... A, so he was our forerunner, right? Yes. He entered... The, the throne, um, as a forerunner. For us. Okay, and that is in six. Give me the verse um, nineteen and twenty. Okay, good, perfect. All right. One more thing on. Let's look at a couple more. Just. We don't want to try to spend too We want to get through some of these other things here yet also. Um, I like chapter 9 a lot. Let's do that one for sure. I'm not sure if it says temple in that one either. So I've got through a couple of extras in here. I'm sorry. I was, it was, my brain connected some things that probably by technicality they're not there so let me look nope it isn't there forget it okay move on <laughs> okay what are there any other points about the throne that you gathered on your list things that you think are significant about the throne and what it shows us about the work that he accomplished for you and I okay it is forever what verse are you in Well, one eight says forever, and what was the other one? Twelve, ten. Twelve and thirteen. Let's go to that one and look at it. Nine, ten. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So, yeah, in that you draw out the quality that it's forever. Actually, in 1.8, it makes it really clear his throne is forever. But that particular one there, it indicates that when he entered in then and he sat down, that the work was finished and, he, and it's finished until the day when he makes his enemies a footstool. Now, for those of us who know our eschatology, when is that day that the enemies are made his footstool? When he returns. So that's the end. That's for all time, right? And when he returns, and he, what will he do when he returns? And, and his enemies have been made his footstool. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. And, and when he comes back, what? There you go. He rules and reigns 
first upon this earth and then all the way into eternity. And it's a throne which is forever. Although we geographically move from this present heaven and earth to a new heaven and earth after the thousand-year reign, his, his throne is never abolished. It is never usurped. It is never like Daniel in the pictures of Daniel. It keeps showing that a kingdom would rise up and another one would come after it and crush it, right? The kingdoms of men keep getting progressively through the generations crushed, but his kingdom is never crushed. And so we had that beautiful picture in Daniel where he's, he's a rock, right, that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And his kingdom is never usurped. So that's a cool thing. Okay, so his throne is forever. All right. So those are the qualities that we see about his throne. And that's why just taking one subject, it's very interesting. There are other things that you can pull in. I, there were a couple of other places. Um, uh, in chapter 12, too, I think is another one that actually might... But I don't remember if she took, had us go all the way to 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Nope, that's the wrong one. 12-2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, okay, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, the sitting down shows a work accomplished for us because to sit down means it's finished and now he is an established king having accomplished that which he promised to do all right awesome Yes. Now, you know, and that one we didn't really talk about, but that actually, in essence, with this particular uh, group uh, as the audience, he is constantly making that comparison between this which was a temporal thing and that which is the reality. How do we tend to live, though, when it comes to that contrast? Yes, we think this is the reality and that the, the heavenly things are kind of the, 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 the dream or an image. It's something you can't always totally quite grasp, which is really kind of sad. And it, it is a discipline, I think, that we need to, to build a whole lot stronger um, through the exercise of our mind and by, the, by faith also, by believing God. God has said to us over and over in his word, we are sojourners in this world, that this is something which is temporal. And when we go into chapter 11, we're going to see that that's one of the points he makes, is that by faith they believed in a heavenly city that was coming, one which was, uh, it, it, he's the architect of and that it's, it's the real home. This we're sojourning through. It's something which is temporal. And I tell you, it is hard sometimes to pull ourselves back into the reality that this life we are living right here, right now, is a training ground. It is temporal. It is not the reality. Because what's really cool, the, it is a, a form of a reality. Obviously, we are physically present in here. But why are we here? What is this life in preparation for? Or I, I, is it the end or is it the preparation? It is a preparation. Boy, and we, don't re we really sometimes do not live it in that way. When this book moves into the realm of uh, the subject of these rewards and the promises that God has made, he keeps exhorting them to do what? Be firm. Be, firm, be faithful. Hold fast. Endure. Mature. Right? Because why? 
because the faithfulness that you exhibit here has a, 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 an effect or a relationship to that which is coming in the future. Um, when, when God says, if you're faithful here, I will entrust you with more, when he speaks of, when Jesus gave on this earth the parables about landowners and about talents and about gifts and rewards that would come and that would be offered and what, what is, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like searching for a treasure. You know, a man will sell everything he has in order to find, to purchase that plot of land that he might find that treasure which he knows is there, Right? Um, we live, I think, too often and too much, and I myself am guilty, that th this is the reality. And because I don't fully grasp what's ahead, and then I, I tend to live in the here and now, forgetting that there's something ahead, right? And that what I'm doing here and now, although significant in certain aspects, it is the shadow just like the temple is the shadow of the reality. When you make life decisions about things you're going to spend your time doing, programs that you're going to support, family relationships you're going to build or not build, right? Friends you're going to make or not make, things you're going to, the things you spend your time doing. How many of us actually filter that through that perspective that he gives us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, set your eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he did the things that he did because of a joy that was coming ahead. Is that what we are doing? Are we actually making this life about the life that we have ahead of us with Christ that goes that's an eternal life. We I hope. I hope so. But I you know I do think that this author is really addressing that with these people. He is really giving them these words of exhortation are instruction, but a lot of them are rebukes and warnings. And he's saying basically evaluate your life, understanding that this is the shadow these were the images of the true and that this life is preparing us for a life to come, the rewards ahead. Uh, he starts in chapter 2. He says, God did not subject the world to come to angels, but who did he subject it to? Who is it that will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in that millennial reign? Us, the saints, the believers. That's who he has subjected that world to come to, you and I. And are we being faithful in what we're doing in this life to be prepared to rule and reign? And what kind of position are you going to be prepared to step into? Who is it that he rewards? The one who is what? Faithful. Now, each of us have different things to do. So it's not about what you're doing. It's about what God has given you to do and how faithful you're, you are in being the, the doing of it. It's not about the actual work that you're doing. It's about the faithfulness in the doing of it. Are you honoring God? Are you keeping the purity of his gospel true in whatever it is you're doing? If you're doing Alzheimer's pr uh, preparedness and help, if that's the ministry God has brought you, are you being faithful in it? Is God being honored? Are people being directed to put their faith and trust on Jesus Christ through it? 
if, you, if you're doing that, and I know you will, this is faithfulness. If you're, um, if you're a pastor of a church or if you're doing administration of some form, if you're serving and setting up chairs and tables, it, whatsoever you do, you do it what? Heartily as unto the Lord, for it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And so I really think a lot of what's going on in this book is exactly that. He's, he, yes, he's training them. He's taking them from the old and bringing them into the reality of the new. He's rebuked them because they hadn't come to really understand their new faith as well as they should have. And so he's encouraging them to step into that maturity of knowledge. But along the way, he's also saying, and in your living, be faithful. Be faithful to what you know, the sure hope. Don't let go of that. Don't abandon it in any way. Hold your principles of doctrine high on a pedestal and keep them as precious so that you do not in any way defame the name of God, that you do not trample him underfoot in any way by the decisions or the things that you say and do and the way that you act, and whether it's just being a friend to a neighbor and baking bread to take over to them or whether it's doing, you know, being a Billy Graham. Whichever your ministry is that God has called you to, that is not the significant importance. It's what you're doing in it. Are you being faithful in honoring him with whatever God has given you to do? Does that not, is that not an encouraging thing? It's not, it, it kind of helps you, I think, let go of your ideas of what you're supposed to be doing and, let's, and says, you know, what has God given me opportunity to do? And am I being faithful in it? Father's will. I love that. And Jesus even says in, in the Gospel of John about that, he keeps saying, I only do the things that the Father does. I only speak the things that the Father does. And then he kept telling them, my time is not yet, yet, yet come. My time is not yet come until it was time. And then he says, it's my time. He waited on the Father, and he, let, and he only listened to the Father. I hear what the Father says, and that's what I speak. I love that. That's a great example. Okay, so we see the, the throne of grace. Now, symbolism of the veil. Did everybody understand the symbolism of the veil? We don't probably need to go through that one in a lot of details, but the veil, ultimately, we had a temple veil, right? And concerning the temple veil, tell me what you know about that in, uh, when you look at it in chapter 9 in particular. Look at it. Um, yeah, I like that. I like 9. In chapter 9, starting in 8 through 11, I think, is primarily where we need to be. That's bringing us forward a little bit in the book. We're getting closer to where we need to be. What was the veils about? What was the... If, if everything in the temple, in the, in the physical realm for us, was a picture, Right? What was the picture or the message about the veil and its presence in that temple? Okay. Mm-hmm. 
That's really the, the message, isn't it? That because of man's sin, there is a separation that has occurred that's between God and man, right? And as long as that temple veil remained, what was that proclaiming to Israel? That what? This, uh-huh, because what had not actually been dealt with? Sin has not, a, isn't that an interesting thought? Now, I, I think this would have been a hard thing for me to fully grasp back when I was first coming into faith, but I get it now uh, so much better. But the idea that there's a veil there, here they are on the Day of Atonement, they're coming forth, the only one that can enter is the high priest. He goes in, he makes the propitiation, and he comes out, but what's still remaining? The veil. So that tells you, even though he, they obediently went in and performed the ceremonial um, requirements that God put in place for them. It was a law that God gave them. They sacrificed the blood of an animal, but what did the blood of the animal not do for them according to chapters 8, 9, and 10? It did not take care of sin. It, it, although it made a temporal a, a covering, and it was a temporal, a, it was called the Day of Atonement, it was there for the purpose of imagery only. Now, what's really cool is go to Galatians chapter 3. That's where you're going to see a lot better what the purpose of that veil accomplished. Let's see if I've got it written down here. I think it was in Galatians. Um, yeah, go to Galatians 3. Let's look at 19 to 25 real quickly. For those of you who have not tied in other cross-references to this, and we didn't do it in our homework, I just want you to see this real quick. Does anybody have that open yet? D Donna, do you have that? Uh, 19 to 25. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of its mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, so it was, the law was there until what would happen? Until the, seed would until the seed would come. And who is the seed? Well, let's keep reading. Wow. So that particular cross-reference gives us a lot better insight, I think, about what the, the purpose of the veil. The veil was there to show that there was a separation between man and God because of our sin. And, as, and according to Hebrews, it, as long as the veil remained and as long as the inner sanctuary, the holy place, was not yet disclosed, what were they supposed to be understanding? What had not been dealt with? Their sin even though they were going in and giving sin sacrifice. Obviously, that sin sacrifice was only symbolic. And what they, what they were supposed to be resonating with them is that one day God promised a seed would come. And he, says, he said it to Adam and Eve in the garden, but he also said it again to Abraham. One day I will promise you, and there were three things he promised through it to Abraham. What were they? Land, nation, and seed, right? 
and that seed according to Galatians is Christ. Yes. Absolutely. Right immediately. Yes. Okay. Yes. There was a passing over, a temporal covering. But, but the whole thing that I love about what Hebrews is showing us and also what Galatians shows us is that the law, the intention of the law was never for forgiveness of sin. Did Now, we didn't have time to do, to do all this, but the covenant of the law, let's talk about some of, the, of its qualities. Yeah, it was blessings and cursings. Blessed if you obey, right? So, in other words, it was a conditional covenant, right? Uh, and how long was it to last according to what we just read? Until who would come? Until the seed would come. So it was, whoops. Temporal. And what did it not do? It did not take away sin. Or take away sin's penalty. Right? I'm going to finish it. In other words, it did not make us pure and conscious. as that's what Hebrews says, right, of it. Um, it was, according to Galatians 3.24, it was, it was the purpose of the law was it was to be what? A tutor. Purpose? A tutor. To lead to Christ. In other words, it was a picture. All those pictures were in there. Okay? Um... And since it doesn't, oh, Hebrews, it was in uh, 7.19 of Hebrews, 7.19, that it did not make uh, the worshiper perfect or their conscience perfect. Uh, it was also in 9.9 of Hebrews. Those statements are said. You can accumulate those two statements in there. Okay? All right. So that gives us an understanding then about the law. Now we understand that the law was temporal. And these who were worshiping under it, this particular generation who was just coming out of this and the temple was still standing, he is giving them very emphatic instructions that the, wall, that the, the law was, was always only a temporal thing. And it was never for the purpose of salvation. It was for teaching righteousness. It was to lead, a tutor to lead them to Christ because all of its symbolic pictures within it were there for the purpose of teaching them about a spiritual thing that was true. This was a shadow. But it did not take away sin's penalty. It only was a temporal covering over. And yes, we can go, as Craig said, go into more detail and, and expound on your insight on that. But the fundamental point that this author wants to make is the law was not there for salvation. It never was. I think we as Gentiles get that so wrong. Most of us don't know that. Most, if you ask almost any Christian today about the law, they would say, oh, no, you get salvation through practicing. Because actually they still talk. I get questions all the time about what about a Jew today? If they're practicing Judaism, are they saved? The answer is 
No, why not? It comes in faith in the seed that God promised to their father Abraham and to their ancestor Adam and Eve in the garden. That seed, according to Galatians 3.24 is, or 3.16 is Christ. And therefore, with that in place, then the, the law never did save. It was a governor or a tutor that was to lead them to Christ. It was put in place for the purpose of giving them law and order while they lived on the land. And here's one of the issues with, with Israel as a nation and what these people were dealing with. Many of them, although they were under the, quote, the covenant of the law, because the covenant of the law, by the way, was a national covenant, not an individual covenant. It was for a nation. So you might want to keep your, that in mind, national not personal. It, there was personal application, but it wasn't made with each one on an individual basis. It was made with a group, right? However, the Abrahamic covenant, when you compare it with that one, what was it? It was completely the opposite of everything you see here. It was a covenant of salvation because Abraham believed God and what resulted? He counted it to him as righteousness. This is all in Genesis chapter 15. And, and um, in that, he promised him the seed. And Galatians lets us know that that seed was Christ. We also see in Galatians verses 6 to 8 that when, when God presented this covenant to Abraham, he was giving him the gospel. It was the gospel message that he received from God through that covenant. And so by that gospel promise of the promises of God, land, seed, nation, particularly the seed, and through the seed, when you go into uh, Genesis 22, he says, and that seed will bless who? Only Abraham? The whole world. Anyone who would put their faith on him. And how do we become children of Abraham? By being a believer as Abraham was. There's a lot that you and I have to understand about these old covenant in order to move forward into a fuller understanding. Can you imagine how much they really needed to, to be trained up and taught? The advantage they have is they understood the law. They understood those covenants. Those were part of their life. For you and I, we're going back and trying to learn all these points. But I think in the church today, one of the biggest things to, to try to teach people is this, that the law never saved. It was never a salvation covenant. That was not its purpose. And therefore, when you talk to people today who want to go back to living under the old law, they want to go back under the old, you know, dressing with certain clothes and eating certain foods. And I'm like, but it never saved. Why would you do that? Why would you go back to something that was only temporal and it was only a picture. Now, how did, this, I, one closing thing to, to point here. How did, um, how did Jesus' death on the cross put aside the old? Because that was one of her questions to us this week in our homework. Um, what was it that, how did he accomplish it? What occurred in that? This is in chapter 9. Starting in verse 15, he says this to them. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, in other words, those sins with the law did not take care of, he, is done he has done and taken care of, 
that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. How come? Because he died. This is interesting. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He promised it and he fulfilled it. God promised Abraham. God promised Adam and Eve. God promised Moses, right? And if God makes the promise, he's the, he's the person making the will. If you make a will for your children, how do they inherit? <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, when you die. Sorry, my throat got choked. Okay, so in order for you to inherit, the person who makes the will has to die. So who died? Jesus died. Who is Jesus? God the Son. So God made the promise and God died. And because he died, then he can, now we, you and I can inherit those things. Man, I'm choking badly. Sorry. So God died making us heirs. This was really cool. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And I want you to compare it to what you see that, with what's going on in verse 15 of chapter 9. Oh, no, I don't need a mint. I just needed a tissue. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, here they are. I've got it. Thank you. What do you see in 3.1? We have become what? Partakers of a heavenly calling. Now go back to chapter uh, 9, and what is he saying about those who have been called? that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So it's a, it's a heavenly calling. We can now receive it. We can receive it because God died, God who made the promises. God died. Now because he's died, his will is put into effect. Isn't that interesting the way that... Now, for you and I, when I first read this, I was lost. I didn't get it. But the more you think it through and you put it into today's practical understanding, when you come to understand that a, a will is only put into effect when someone dies, then you see, oh, that's why God had to come and die. And it's also, in according to what he's teaching them here, it's how the new covenant could be put into effect. If you're under a covenant with someone, and it's an everlasting covenant as the covenant of uh, the Abrahamic covenant was, and also the covenant of the law was in effect until it was completed. What completes it? The dying of the one who made it, right? So by Jesus dying, he freed them from the law. Romans 7 teaches this. We also see that um, uh, we then become partakers of the heavenly calling in the book of Hebrews, he starts back in chapter 8 talking about the um, uh, new covenant that would come one day because it was, again, another promise. Remember Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36? He says, one day I will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the old. Do you remember what this book emphasizes? The, under the old one, what happened when they sinned? God did not care for them, right? What, what about the new one? How is he going to operate under the new one? Mercy and grace, right? What a stark contrast. So he's saying for you to be let, let, let go of and to be released from an old system, an old covenant, I have to die so that you can be released from that. You're married to me in that relationship. And until I, until I die, you can't remarry someone else. 
So he, John, or, um, Romans 7 teaches about that marriage release, how you get released from an old covenant. So he, God comes, he dies on the cross, you're now released from, from the covenant of the law, but you're also made available to become an heir of the first covenant through Abraham. You can become an heir of what he promised in that one because God died. So now you can inherit what he promised. One of the major things that he promised about that was under the old covenant, they had laws written on stone, right? What was God promising for the new covenant? Written on our hearts. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, when it's the day of Pentecost, and Jesus says to them, go to Jerusalem and wait until I... I, I um, the Father sends what he has promised. Here he says, you are going to become partakers of a heavenly calling. You are going to be allowed to uh, receive what was promised through the sure hope of God, what he has promised you. And he says, um, therefore, it had to be inaugurated with, with his blood. Then when we hit chapter 10 and he starts talking about this, he gives them this rebuke about rejecting the blood of the new covenant and, and trampling underfoot the son of God who came and took on flesh for us and insulting the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he say? What does he mean when he says to not insult the Holy Spirit? The spirit of grace, he calls it. Okay. Not accepting it. Right. How, what is the, the major insult against the Spirit? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven, although all other sins will be? That rejection of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he's saying here. So when he says in, in that one thing, he says, do not insult the Spirit of grace. And what is he speaking of? Well, when you go back to Hebrews 4 and 3, 3 and 4, he's saying it's unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief is demonstrated in your disobedience and a hard heart. So he's saying, do not insult the spirit of grace because I have died. I have fulfilled it. I have made it available. You can now inherit the promise, which was the spirit. Now it's going to be the law on your hearts, not on stone. And you, you can receive that inheritance because I died for you. You also can now leave the old covenant of the law and enter into a new covenant of a law in your heart because I released you by my death. So he fulfills both of those covenants and releases. He fulfills one and releases the other. The other one being fulfilled because it was never a temporal. It was an eternal covenant that all of its promises would go on forever and ever and ever and ever. He has promised them a land, a seat, and a nation. And that nation is going to go into eternity, right? He, we will receive a new heaven and a new earth, but it will still be that, that land, that sea, that nation fulfilled in, through God's uh, fulfillment of his word. And so these people now are being taught that they are released from it because of the blood, because of the death. God came and he died. I love it because now you can go back to chapter 1, reread chapter 1, and how he starts out saying he is God. He is the exact representation, and he says of him, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. So he starts there, and do you see how he's woven this? I mean, there are, the intricacies in this book are deep and um, a little bit complicated, but when you start to, to really see them, it becomes amazing truth that these people are released from that which bound them and, and held them back and 
put them in a position where Paul says he feels like he, he could never accomplish them. He could never really keep them. But when the power of the Spirit came and he was walking by the Spirit, then he would not fulfill the, the lust of the flesh. What a better covenant that is. And when you do fail, he says, I operate from mercy and grace, not from condemnation. That's true, too. Yeah. It's another, it's another quality of it. Yeah. Yeah. What if somebody leaves you something and you re refuse to have it? Right. Right. Yeah. You become his child, though, and, and uh, eligible for inheritance by faith. That's what makes you a family member uh, to be qualified even to receive it. So you come in by faith. You believe God. You understand at this point what, he, what the throne's picture was for them, what the veil's picture was for them. And then you come to see the covenant and how he's released them from those previous ones, how he fulfilled one so they could make application. He says, and you have become partakers of a heavenly calling. And those who have called now, he says, you, can, you may receive that, which is inheritance because of the death of, of Jesus. Okay, we did pretty good on 